Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid, or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. The new Apple TV series Bad Sisters is an absolute cracker and it is based in Dublin. In fact, you see Dublin perhaps never looking better in a major TV series. And it's a very natural Dublin. It's not playing to any of the stereotypes of American television as it might normally portray Ireland. Which is no surprise when you consider that this is written and stars Sharon Horgan and has an all-star cast of some of Ireland's best actors. But to have something as well done as Bad Sisters doesn't just depend on the acting and the writing, it depends on the direction. And our guest in the latest Magnified with Matt Cooper podcast is possibly Ireland's leading television director. She won an Emmy back about 13 years ago for Little Doris, which she did for the BBC. She has also made programmes like Shameless, EastEnders, Fargo. She was very involved in the latest series of Fargo, which is one of the best things to have come out of American television in recent years, and also The Handmaid's Tale. Dervla Walsh is from Sligo in the west of Ireland, although she still lives in Dublin and delighted in being able to spend 18 months working on the Bad Sisters project. She's absolutely fascinating as to what is involved in the making of great television, so I'm delighted to be able to have her at our kitchen table here for the latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. Dervla Walsh, thank you so much for joining me for the latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. And I want to talk about the terrific career that you've had in directing since I first came across you when we were both students in DCU at the same time back in the 1980s. Actually, you won't remember this, but you're the very first person who put a camera in my face and got me to speak to it. (laughs) Honestly, Matt, I didn't know that. Yeah. (laughs) The very first person who did. I sound very rude. I hope I asked your permission first. No, we were out on assignment. I was with the journalism class. You were with the uh, communications graduate class at that stage. And we were put together to do these sort of mock mini documentaries. And I was the reporter and you were the person who was directing the cameraman and telling me what to do and the rest of it. So our paths were destined to cross again. And here now is you're putting a microphone in my face. The impression of me. I clearly didn't make the impression on you. So we're quits after this, are we? <laughs> but you've had an extraordinary career and I want to go through a lot of that, but I want to start with what you're doing at the present, Bad Sisters, with Sharon Horgan as the star, although there are many stars in it. And it's one of the things that really has impressed me about Bad Sisters, which is a very black comedy, in that even though she has written it, it's written for all of the cast to shine rather than just her. Very much. She would say that it's... it was written with that in mind, that she isn't there to star in it. She is the eldest of five fabulous sisters, dark sisters that are bonded by love and loyalty to each other. And five fantastic Irish actress, Sharon, obviously playing the eldest Eva. And then Grace, played by Anne-Marie Duff, who's of Irish lineage. And people might remember her from Garage. And we worked together on Shameless back in the day and fantastic theatre actress. Eva Berthistle, who plays the married Ursula of three kids. Sarah Green, who plays the bad BB, she last would have been seen as Connell's mother 
<laughs> in Normal People and also in Rosie. And then the fabulous baby Becca E. Fusen, daughter of, but fabulous actress in, in, in her own. So it's a kind of a power of fantastic Irish women and a really strong ensemble piece. And two brilliant men as well, Breen Gleeson, son of, and, and newcomer to the screen, Daryl McCormack from Clonmel, who play half-brothers of the Devots. So it's a kind of like a Romeo, there's an element of a Romeo and Juliet story. The Garveys and the, and the Devots are Clappens. We had to change their name. Might have to change their name. Because everything and here on the screen has to be cleared. Every single name, every phone number, every picture in a room, every car reg, every, and particularly for, I suppose this particularly happens as budgets get bigger, somebody like Apple in case there is anything sued, and they're sued for anything. But and I think they had, a, every street has to be cleared in case Somebody looks up the phone book, not that the phone books exist any, anymore, but and somebody says that there's defamation of character. For example, JP, John Paul Williams, he did have another name. Obviously, if, you, if your name was John Paul Williams, you wouldn't be very happy that uh, people would mistake you with the, our fictional JP. But yeah, it's one of the really, the legal, the legal aspect of putting something on screen is, is massive. And it is a great challenge, therefore, when you're trying to make something that's very authentic. It is very darkly, blackly funny. I have to say, though, that character, John Paul Williams, the element of coercive control is very off-putting. I know it's deliberately so, that's the story, Mm. but there is that undercurrent that there is Mm. a very serious Mm. undercurrent behind it because when you see the way he treats his wife and daughter, it's a real, ooh, it's a real shocker. That was a really difficult line to tread because this story, Sharon adapted it from a... Flemish uh, uh, story called Clan, which I had seen and watched when she approached me first. And the five sisters were fantastic in that. And JP, the character, well, he wasn't called JP in that, but in that character, it was, he was played very broadly. And even though he did dark things, they shirked away from, they kind of softened the darkness of it. We decided to go a more, to not shy away from the darker themes. But then the challenge was, how to, uh, when I introduced him first, about I wanted him to be like that annoying uncle. So you don't write him off from the first moment. Then we're all at our family events and there's always the uncle or the aunt. You don't want to be left stuck inside. All your uncles are now thinking, hang on, is, am I the one she's referring to? <laughs> yes, that's true. And maybe unfair. I love you all. But the tragedy of the story is you, what, the sisters watching somebody they love, their sister, that person have that control over them and how his issues are his intense jealousy of the bond of those of those five girls and constantly trying to needle himself in between the sisters and that's very believable like when you think of any scenario the jealousies and all of us uh, with somebody you marry somebody you tend to inherit their family and that is either good or bad and i think it's a very human thing for people to experience yeah, I think jealousies and, OK, obviously, JP is pushed to a great level of, of darkness. But when we met him first, we wanted to, him be, for him to be more annoying, the annoying uncle. And then there's a moment in the story that you go, oh, this guy is dark. There's something more, there's more that happens. Behind Who's the actor who plays John Paul That's Williams? That's Clay Spang. He's from Denmark. And actually... I had only seen him in a fantastic art house film called The Square. But since then, I think he's been Dracula and I think he tends to get dark characters, which (laughs) he... He plays a very convincing Irishman. 
Do you? Th- that's great to hear. Do you think that? Fantastic. I wouldn't have known he was Danish. Yeah, that's uh, actually he has a really strange accent. He almost sounds, I think, more English, more estuary. But uh, yeah, and there's also that idea of being the outsider and marrying into the marrying into family. And then as the story unfolds, the cleverness of the structure of the pieces, we're in the present, and uh, there's two timelines: the present, which is his funeral, and there's constant little clues as to everything isn't as it seems and then the past six months previously we meet him at Christmas Day and he's dead within a couple of months and each episode we see why somebody might want him gone and we see what are the we meet his mother we meet we learn more about his story so it's really it's a dark thriller told through a kind of comedy witty lens but as Sharon described it it's a drama with jokes in it That's that was our intention No, you're involvement in it. How did you get involved? And tell us about your roles as executive producer and as director, because there are many people who might make an enormous amount of assumptions as to what are involved in those roles. But can you explain them to me? Okay, as the director, and I was the lead director in America, it's called the pilot director. But as the as the lead director, I am involved from very early on, usually involved in casting, in also casting all the heads of departments. So meeting and deciding on production designer, director of photography, costume, hair, makeup, and working with them to develop and focus on the tone and the look of the piece. Then as director, working with the actors and rehearsing and on the on the set, working with how to block the scenes and then working with your editor. So directors in England and Ireland, the European tradition, work from the beginning of the project to the end. Whereas in America, if you're either a pilot director or or you come in and just do your hour, you come in and go and they give you seven days prep, seven days shoot, and they don't pay you for the edit, which is just four days. So it can be very, it's very different and challenging in a whole other way. As an executive producer, it gives you a chair at the editorial table. As executive producer, this is 10 hours. I did the first three. Initially, they wanted me to do the first four to start it and end it. And I ended up doing three episodes. And But as an executive producer, I've been across the whole series. But as director, you set the tone in the first mm-hmm. three series, for the, particularly for the visual look of it mm-hmm. and the feel of it. So what's it like then handing over to other directors to come in to do the remainder of the series? It's the reality. You can't do it all. Of course, it's, of course it's hard. It's really hard if you start something not to end it. And you obviously want everybody to, the next directors, to you hand the baton and to run with it. The natural instinct of every director is to do better than the last and oh, I can do that. People and every director is very different. Some directors are more about the, the equipment, the, the shots that other directors are at performance centred directors. And the thing that you can never allow for are the relationships between between you and the cast or you and the HODs. And they're as, they're as important as everything else, because every day is if you if your call is 8am, you're behind by five past eight. So it's difficult, but it's also, it's also everybody's part of a team. And some, in this case, we ha- there were two other directors and I would have involved them at the beginning in terms of my tone presentation to the show and tell to the Apple executives so they could see and hear what the overall tone and feel of it was. And also... I always think it's interesting from the actor's point of view because on film, the director and actor relationship is key and it's there from the beginning to the end. And a lot of actors and obviously particularly film actors are great actors are nervous about getting involved in episodic work and that they lose control of their character. I remember Donal, Donal, 
Oh, br- the brilliant Donna McCann saying on The Late Late that theatre was the actor's medium and TV was the film. TV was uh, film and TV was the director's medium. Um, and is that true? I think it is, yes, because I'm shooting various takes. I'm deciding what will happen in the edit. And so the director or the ed- actor, when the take is complete, the actor doesn't know what will, has to trust that the director will. There is a difference between what they might think is the best and what you might think is the best. There's a great uh, example of I was doing a story about best friends and it was a story about a man who sleeps with his best friend's wife. And and one was a radio producer and the other was a radio star. Uh, Anyhow, I was doing the scene and it was a two-hander and then it came to shooting the singles. And when I was shooting the single of the close-up of one of the actors during it, he picked his nose and anyhow I needed another take and I went up and I said let's do that again and this time if you're angrier with him at this or you don't let him see that your jealousy at this point or whatever the note was and then just before I walked up and I said and you can drop the nose picking in this take (laughs) I have that and he said no it's a choice sir I want to pick my nose I said absolutely I said you can you can pick your nose it's just at the end of this the two of you Two men, the audience, lots of women are going to be, I liked him or I didn't, or I liked him. There is no woman watching TV who will prefer the man who picks his nose. So I, I suggest you lose the nose picking. But also it's just the, as the other actor says, that's a bit of your time on screen that will that is less available to be used. I So that is where the director is in control all the way to the end. But... I like to think about in control in a good way, making the actor shine, making the making the story shine. And we'll go back to some of the things that you've been involved in, because I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with The Handmaid's Tale and Fargo and Shameless and EastEnders and all the things you've worked on. But this particular project, Bad Sisters, and the way that you've described it, is this maybe your biggest and one that you've been most in control of? Most here, I think Little Doris. Which, Which you won I, the Emmy for? Yes, I was involved in that from the ver- from the very beginning to the very end. So was it similar? There were seventy two characters in in that story across the thirteen episodes. I did the first six episodes, and I cast fifty five of those actors. Very much set up the tone. And there were, I think there were eleven Emmy nominations and seven wins for that for that series. So it was huge. I think so many departments shone in in that. Little Dark Ezio Trost, the adaptation of Roald Dahl's. I know that was a film for TV. So I've been involved with that from the beginning and to the end. A series called The Silence. But there have been lots that I have been involved in. Suddenly when something is bigger on a, on, on, and on a bigger platform and is seen more internationally, it, it, it feels, it feels bigger. But it would strike me, is there a very big budget for this, for Bad Sisters? Because looking at the early episodes, the ones that I've seen to date, I don't think I've ever seen Dublin been presented in such a lush looking fashion pictorially it's I mean, the, the, the budget was clearly there for all the sort of shots particularly the drone aerial shots and everything yeah. that you have um i guess the budget was bigger but the budget is never enough no matter how you're whether you're working on a low budget or a high budget you, if you've never enough money because you've never enough time and often with a bigger budget comes like i had a crew of 150 every day and i've worked on dramas where i've had a crew of 12. it's there are advantages and disadvantages. Sorry, what are 150 people doing 
have you seen the credits? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the credits. I'm wondering and, what do they do? And, and COVID has added a whole other layer. But just to say about never seen Dublin look so lush. I mean, their choices. Like I wanted when it was written, when I read the script first, Sharon had imagined it in a small town and in her imagination, she had it in Skerries. But in inland scaries, because she it was like a town that she always drove through coming down from and into Dublin. And I went to it. I mean, I'm from the west of Ireland and I live off the South Circular Road. So I don't know the north side that very well, except for where I went to university in DCU. And I went to Scaries and it just reminded me of Kinnegad. We used to get the bus back to bus back to college. And I said, oh, there's nothing romantic about this. And it's a bit too, could be like a today's Ballycus Angel. And I really wanted it to have the warmth and the wildness of a west of Ireland, um, but not the kind of the darkness and the grit of Dublin town, love, hate. And I wanted to have a kind of a town community feel. So the designer and I, we really worked at, I, I wanted the sisters to feel wild and informed by where they lived and how they lived. So I set them all, I found every location by the water. And just that idea of when you're, and to tell that story of being islanders and kind of women at the edge, that in Ireland we're at the edge of, of everything. So the lushness comes from a choice of, I'm not in shooting at the Liffey. We come into Dublin town, maybe once. It's all set in and around Malahide and Hoth and because I wanted that community town feel. Well you are uh, in the 40 foot on the south yeah, side sorry, I yeah, yeah. and I did notice in early episodes as well you're down near the what is noticed was Google Town down in the near the financial yes. services centre the tech area. That's the only that is the only scene we come into town for and that was supposed to be outside the Marker Hotel because we wanted again any images that there were of Dublin to show it as a very contemporary and progressive and beautiful city but we couldn't get permission to Dublin City wouldn't have given us permission to use the to use down at the canal basin so that and we had to at the last minute find somewhere else so I liked the kind of we call it Google Arch and that that kind of feel of that area and also the notion of the, the couple get 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 caught there by JP and you're it's also thinking because that was written to be in the um, Malahide Hotel and it's going, if you're having an affair you're not going to sleep, go to a hotel in the town. As we yeah. all know, like Dublin communities are the same as rural communities that people are see each other, know each other all the time. So the idea is that she came into the city to 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 her night class of the photography and he's come into a gym after work. So that's how they crossed the 40 foot. And I was a lot of Dubliners said, nobody's going to believe a family who live in Hoth come over to the 40 foot for for a swim. But I think the tradition of the 40 foot is so strong. And, and Sharon was really passionate about the 40 foot that we wanted to keep that and I loved the idea that when you're at the 40 foot you can look across Hoth and see practically see their house. What really strikes me from chatting to you about this is the enormous amount of work and planning that has to go into making 10 episodes of around 48 minutes in length each so you're making a multitude of feature films here. Yeah. So how oh, long Just five features, six features just maybe. Yeah. How long were you working in this project and how did you get involved in this? Okay, I was editing Fargo, and I was shooting, prepping Fargo Series 4 in Chicago. And my agents in America were saying, there's a producer who really wants you to read this script called Shining Veil. And I said, oh God, I'm really busy. When I'm on one project, I'm really bad at thinking about another. And it was, it's a Sharon Horgan script. It's a comedy horror. And I went, oh, I'm not a comedy director and I hate horror. And it's written by Sharon Horgan. I went, oh, okay, I'm, send it to me and I'll read. But I really 
read it expecting not to like it. And I just could see and hear Sharon's voice in it. And I ended up doing a Zoom with her and the, and the writer, showrunner, uh, Jeff Astroff. And by the end of it, I went, God, I think I... I, th I think I'd really like to do this. And my agent was saying, Derv, it's really out of your wheelhouse. You're known more for your more relationship drama. And, have a, and I thought, and I felt excited, I, like even though it was set in Connecticut and I could hear Sharon's voice and I'm a huge, I hadn't met Sharon at that stage. Uh, anyhow, I ended up committing to that. COVID happened. But at our first meeting, when I was meeting Jeff and Sharon in L.A., so this would have been two years ago before before COVID happened. I arrived early and Sharon was there and we'd never met before. And Sharon said, I said, I've got this great drama about five sisters that I think you'd be great for. Would you be interested in reading it? And I'm sure. And then Jeff was coming down and I said, I think we better talk about Shining Veil. <laughs> so anyhow, the pilot, I shot the pilot. It was, it went on to be greenlit. It was my first pilot in the States. And that was with Greg Kinnear and Courtney Cox and Mira Servino. And I had a blast on it. It was really, really fun. And as I said, I'm not a comedy fan, but my, I sat with my partner's son and we, I just basically, he loves horror and we just blitzed every horror film and all my horror references. And that was, and so throughout it, Sharon during COVID was working in the writer's room on, she sent me her early scripts of it and sent me the series was based on and asked for various thoughts along the way. So then I jumped on board fully as soon as, so about 18 months ago, so last kind of February, March, 12 months, I started on it. And so just go back to Shining Veil. Vale. So you did the pilot for that and had you continued to work with that? No, I got offered then. This, when you do a pilot in America, you don't know whether they decide whether it's going to go to series based. On and did it go to series? It. it did go to series. It was actually, and it's been, a, it's now gone to a second series. And they asked me to stay and, and do the series. But at which stage I had committed to, to Sharon's other project. So there was a bit of Sharon Shining Veil. They, they wanted me. And, and then there was, it was called Clan at, the, at, at that time. It's now Bad Sisters. But anyhow, as a director, you're normally committed to things lots in advance. So anyhow, I, there was a conflict of interest, but I really was interested in working on this because I'd be involved from the beginning. It was great drama comedy and it was very meaty. And I loved the idea and the opportunity to come home to Ireland and be in charge of what will Ireland look like on the screen? Because so often the, any successful big series about Ireland are, we are looking at them through the lens of an American point of view or a, traditionally our stories have been told from the outside on screen. And then collapse into cliches of what other people yeah. think about yes. Ireland, which yeah. most definitely does not happen in Bad Sisters. Exactly. And that's a very conscious choice. Sharon is a very fresh, contemporary, funny, edgy writer. And I'd like to think that even though I have very romantic notions and, and really fly the flag for Ireland internationally, I was very conscious of how we would frame the world and so that we wouldn't be seen as cliches or, or stereotypes. And so it was really important to me how those women came across and looked and what, how we saw Ireland. So there was no diddly eye in it and what the music choices were. And I worked with a composer, Tim, a Canadian man who I've worked with a lot and PJ Harvey was who Sharon got, got on board. And we talked a lot about the music. What would the sound be? Would it be a female sound? Would it be what... Because as soon as you put a whistle or a flute on something, you're gone into a <laughs> river dance territory. And it's incredible. And I think that is great in its own. But in, so you're constantly fighting what a sound or what a picture or what an accent, where that sends the viewer. And, and an interesting example is 
when the American executive saw the series first, so they found some of the di accents difficult to understand, or they said, why doesn't everybody sound like Sharon? Because Sharon has a hybrid. Like when I go home to Curry, people accuse me a bit of sounding a bit West British. And when I'm in London, my casting director says, Derby, you sound so Irish. So it's, you can't, because your job is to constantly be understood or to articulate your ideas, I think that there's such a mix of different Irish accents. And I don't know if you find it with your own kids or certainly with my yes. cousins and nieces and nephews. Everybody's mid-Atlantic. Everybody's, there's a the real American twang. And I love Irish accents. I love hearing the authenticity, the local sound in any American show I've done. If I can get somebody with a, if I can get accents into it, because there's such a pressure constantly to neutralize and make everything quiet. And so trying to get the, and one of the and other characteristics of Sharon's writing, I, when I did As You Trot, there was a whole thing Roald Dahl wrote that Miss Silver had a joie de vivre. And that's what uh, Mr. Hoppy falls in love with. And I describe in Bad Sisters what Sharon has written and the girls, the Bad Sisters have, is a joie de banter. And and so the scenes that were so much fun because they talk like any of our families over each other and people don't finish sentences and, and those people are sardonic with each other. But that is a nightmare for the sound department and also often for executives who are trying to hear everything to be understood. And so there was an, an element at the beginning that they thought every Irish woman they met was was a Garvey sister. So hence, for example, how, why we had to put the name titles on the sisters at the beginning. So there wasn't a confusion that when you meet Breen's wife, that she isn't a Garvey sister or, or who else do we meet early on that people thought was a Garvey sister as well. So yeah, anyhow, just that blankish interpretation of. Let's go back a little bit in your career because you mentioned Little Doris and the involvement that you had with that and you won an Emmy for that in 2009. How much did that change your career? How many doors did that open up for you, particularly in the United States? I think that's a really hard question to answer because I don't know. It must have. In the States, everybody loves a winner. Like I went to the Emmys through the back door and I came out the front door and everybody wanted their photograph taken once you were the, the Once American. you were holding yes, the Emmy. yeah. And I used to hands and say, get your back. No, could I hold it? Could I? So it's just... I found it so funny. I'm the exact same person I was a couple of hours ago, but now obviously I'm seen differently. At that stage, I was already, uh, I heard that I was nominated while in the middle of directing a sex scene with, with Jonathan Rhys Myers and his fifth wife, I think. This is in the Tudors. In the Tudors, it? yeah. How did it change things? If you're a Kerry footballer compared to a Sligo footballer, and my brother was a Sligo footballer, he's a great footballer, but he, they've never won the All-Ireland. So probably more people buy a pint for his Kerry mate rather than, the, than him and I suppose it's maybe the difference between being the bridesmaid and the bride but yeah it's, it's, no, it's like, almost a question I suppose of it's all it's I think what people see is if you have everybody loves a winner and wants to wants them on side but I suppose it's it means people are looking at who you've worked with yeah, and that you can handle international stars or a schedule or... You've been involved in some great programmes and things that I've loved watching on television. Fargo would be a particular favourite of mine. I think it's just this most wonderfully inventive, dramatic mm. series. And 
tell us a little bit about when you get involved in that, because that again is somebody else's vision yes, very yeah. much. And you've had responsibility for specific episodes in that. I think that's a great example of a contrast between between the American system and Far- directing Fargo or Handmaid's Tale and directing Bad Sisters or Little Dorrit. So in the in the American system, the showrunner is king and the showrunner is the creator, which is always the writers have great power in America and the creators. And that's particularly the case in Fargo, isn't it? The name of the creator escapes yes, me at present. Noah Hall like, but he is all yeah. over that yes. show yeah. start to finish, yeah. isn't he? And reading the first scripts of Fargo, the first time I read it, it just, oh my God, they're just so brilliant. Because, for example, because it's so offbeat, it's so particular to its place. And there's such a confidence in its tone and in the slow burn of the characters. And then there's lots of little Easter eggs in it of kind of references to the Coen Brothers films. Working on something like Fargo, the Directors Guild, of first of all, you have to be a member of the Directors Guild of America to work on an American drama. But legally, the shows are you get seven days to prep it and seven days to shoot it, which is, it never turns out like that because these are, especially something like Fargo, they're each like a feature film. So obviously coming on to, I worked on in Fargo 3 where Ewan McGregor is playing the two brothers. Yeah. And then I worked on the last series with Chris and Jesse Buckley. So you come to a script that's already written so and everybody's already cast. There's always day players or people who are only going to be particular. You're always responsible for casting people that are particular to your own. And then there are always new locations. So the world is set, but so in that Fargo with Hugh McGregor, the house had already been designed and set and been filmed in and the car parking king. But then there were... There is a great scene where Michael Stuhlberg cowardly watches Ewan McGregor's other half be beaten to a pulp. And that, as it was written in a particular way, but I just had such a sense of, that was like new locations we defined, kind of wanting this huge, big, isolated space of the embracing the world of the snow. It was my first time to that part of America and being so struck by the massive expanse when you go to a place that is all snow and just thinking about how people find, how do you make yourself part of somewhere that just seems otherworldly but uh, so the crew are all the crew are already there I'm working with the DOP who's already so basically Sorry, on something what, what's like the that DOP? The, the director of photography okay. so in a show like that you're the person who knows least <laughs> I remember on uh, The Handmaid's Tale, there was a new director of photography when I came on board and we were the only two people I turned around to him and said, the, I said, you and I are the only new people on this. We're the people who have to do the most work because you're catching up all the time. In a way, it's almost easier starting because you're creating something from yeah, the so beginning. Do you, do you have to familiarise yourself with the previous episodes so that, that you keep yeah. the same sort of yeah. tone and also so that you maintain a consistency perhaps in the work of the actors as well? Yeah, you read all the scripts, watch all the dailies, watch all the rushes that are already shot. If you're lucky enough, you can watch assemblies that are coming out of the edit, but you tend not to be able to see them. Just have a feel for what, because rhythm is everything, how things are cut, how long shots are, how you use your lenses, whether something's shot at day or night, you get X amount of time and you have to make it work in that schedule. So you might have to adapt scenes when you go find your locations, adapt scenes for that location. And and I always make sure, I was going to tell you earlier when you were saying, is it difficult for directors to, to have another director take over your show? I always think it's difficult for actors having another director come on because I think for actors, it's a bit like being from 
parents who are from a family that uh, the parents have broken up and you've just spent Monday to Friday with your mother and you have to go to your dad for the weekend and it's oh I don't want to go I hate they're going there for the weekend and then you arrive and uh, so the actors never want to leave their director after the first block go to them and I much prefer her and then after a while they go oh dad's not bad oh I think I can stay here for a little longer <laughs> so I always think it's actually more difficult for them than it is for us and just you have to make sure mum and dad think about the family as a whole Today's edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper is brought to you by NG Ireland. I'm fascinated by the depth and variety to the job that you have because you have to tell the story as has been set down by the screenwriter for you. You have to visualise it all because that's so important as to what we, the viewer, get to see on our screens afterwards. But also you have to develop relationships with the actors to get them to perform in the way that you want, which might be a different relationship that they've had with the other directors. So what is the secret to developing good relationships, particularly with big name star actors? And many of the people you've mentioned already are big Hollywood superstars. I think you're absolutely right relationships are everything because everybody can do the job it's how how they do the job and sometimes how you what you achieve by the end of the day what makes you get a performance or get something that you know that, that there's something special about and I think relationships and a um uh, are key to that so the first thing I would say is being truthful with your actor I never bullshit an actor and they know when they are and they know when they know when you don't know. And there's lots of things you don't know. And there's lots of times you don't know. And I'm sure you know yourself when you're interviewing somebody that sometimes you are, you're when you're hanging out there and you have to, you're trying to work out what's, for example, when I was working with Judy Dench and Dustin Hoffman, we had d- done this scene and I needed another take because the focus went or something. And, and I was on my way over and I knew the camera needed another take. And I was going like, what did I say to Judy? There's like her performance was perfect, but I need, so I went over to Judy and I I said, Judy, um, we can do that one more time. I had no note to give to her because she was perfection. And I said... Sorry, if she was perfection, why did you need it done another time? Because the camera had, it was out of focus. Something technical was wrong with the shot. And this is why every, some point everybody has to be on their game all the time. And it's not often that an actor will just nail it in the first take. It takes a couple of takes, but Judy Dench just nailed it. Every time I went over to Judy and I went, Judy, if we could just do that one more time. And maybe that time when you went to pick up the knitting, and she went... Oh, dear, I don't know what I did. Why don't I just do something different? And I was going, that'd be great, Judy. Thank you. Uh, but not every, not, a, not every actor is like that. But, but you said, how do uh, I spend a lot of time in prep working with the, I make sure to meet each actor and do a, what I call a page turn or do a one, one-to-one with each actor. So before everybody's in a room, because everybody's full of insecurity, everybody wants to do the best, everybody's a little bit looking at what's she doing or what, and then it becomes a reactive performance in the wrong way. So you're trying to enable the actor to, to give the best, to give them the space and to give them the confidence to do the best that they can do to explore, to dig deeper in a character. And that takes trust. And I think an actor has to trust a director that that's what... But the last thing you should say to an actor is, can you do that out there? Because, and why? Because that's where my camera is. That's an actor. I don't care what the... So much so I don't care what the camera 
is camera has to find me. I never speak to actors about how, why and I want this for technical reasons. It's just all about the performance because no matter what the lighting is, no matter what the lens is, it is secondary to what the actor is thinking and feeling and watching their eyes. It's even, that's more, it's, that's called subtext. It just strikes me listening to you, another trait that you must need in the job is confidence. You have to be very confident, don't you, to be able to tell people what to do, particularly when they are Hollywood superstars in many cases. If you mentioned the likes of Dustin Hoffman, he would have been a Hollywood superstar when you were growing up watching TV and movies mm. in Tupper Curry and Sligo. Well, you have to play confidence. I always say I'm the biggest actor on the set. When it's all like the swan and at the, on, on top of the water, everything is perfect. And that's great. We're, and underneath, it's, we're behind. We're, and I always think with uh, Dustin Hoffman, he had more to fear than I had. He had a career behind him and he, and he was going, who's this girl Tupper Curry from Tupper Curry? And I could kill his career in, in, in one film. So he had a lot more to lose than I had. And I took that attitude. And he, uh, he was just, once he was on board, he was just completely, uh, completely brilliant. You know what I said to you, never show an actor, you never show an actor what to do. And on the first day with uh, Dustin, I've always worked out what I want. I know where the character comes in with this. I know what I want. And what is exciting for me is finding, getting what I didn't know I wanted. And that's what an actor truly brings. He would be famous as a method actor, yeah. as they call it. So how do you deal with actors who decide that they want to go into the character that they're playing and then others would say, you're just supposed to act? Mm, whatever an actor needs to do. I honestly, I haven't worked with any, anybody as method as Daniel Day-Lewis, but like Tom Courtney playing old Doris, his vulnerability, Dustin playing Mr. Hoppy was a very different part to what he'd done before. Whatever an actor needs, it's, you want to, as I said, enable the best possible performance. So you are there to mind them, to make them as as brilliant as they possibly can be. And you asked about how you build up your relationships. With example, with the Bad Sisters, with the five girls, this all started on Zoom and we couldn't be in the, even on our read through. We couldn't, normally you have a table read and everybody's and that's your chance to see everybody together to hear. It's the only time you will ever hear the script in the one place at the one time and everybody, everybody seeing they don't see each other again till the rap party. So COVID was working against us all the time. And so I did things like I got the five girls down to the 40 foot. And swimming, I kind of, we went out to dinner. I made a WhatsApp group as the Garvey clan. So just constantly working on the relationships that people were talking to each other and connecting and, and growing a codependence between each other for the period of that film. Like lots, of, there's lots who haven't swam in the port, but it started, I brought them to a swimming pool in a hotel in London and we played games and goggles and just do what you do when you go to a pool with your kids. And you know, even people being in their swimsuit and conscious of how they look. Actors are real people too. We all <laughs> think we look too fat in this. And, uh, and oh my God, what do I look like with my hair wet? They're real. They're, and that, that kind of, when people are worried about their physical being, that gets in the way of what's happening in the heart and soul and in the thoughts. Of, so I spent lots of time breaking that down, getting them to, to come into, the, like, the, and to jump into the 40 foot, which is, I don't know, spoilers, but this, the, this, the story ends at the 40 foot. Don't be spoiling <laughs> but Those things, they're tiny, but they all play a part. And, and you, I don't know if it's at the beginning of episode two, episode three, it's the next episode. There's a scene where they're back at the 40 foot and I wanted the whole scene to play out 
while they were changing their clothes. Because again, when we're all at the beach and we're under a towel, and I think it's very particular to Irishness, we're trying to change and pull down the bra and the hernets to not see, not let anybody see. I wish we were doing this as a video (laughs) so people could see what you're doing. It's a very very hard thing for an actor because they, of course, have to do lots of takes and they have to remember what to do. But it was so good working with Sharon and and Sarah and Eve and then and Eva to just it made the scene so authentic. And also I added the fact that Bibi, who's wearing a hatch for a reason that we'll find out she has only one eye, but we find out why she has later in the series. In the original, you never met her without her patch. And so I always thought she looked a bit pirate and I was much more, I was interested in, again, my mum who has passed away had breast cancer and lost her hair and had a double mastectomy. And... <laughs> When the doorbell would ring, she'd run out to answer the door and she for, wouldn't forget to put on her wig or I was in the, I was in my room one day and, and my friend was there and she came into the room and she hadn't got her, her top on, her family. And I was fine, but I was mortified for my friend. But I just thought that's what families do. It's you go to the loo and you'd leave the door open and you shout at somebody. <laughs> and so I loved, so I got her to take off her patch and put it on as if it was a piece of clothing. So just normalising that when they're family together, that you see people, warts and all, you see their scars and people, I think when they're members of family, don't judge each other. And I think all of that really, I think that hopefully really comes through. You in the think piece. of things true a lot, don't you? You have to think and you have yeah. obviously imagination as well. I think you play each character. You play when I'm putting the piece together. It's like, where would Bibi live? What's Bibi's? What? Yeah, you play out each. Where, what clothes would she? Where would she put them? If I the scene in on Christmas Day and in in that first episode, when all the family are thrown together, I'm sure you know, when you go back to your own family or on Christmas Day, there's always the seat. There's always don't get on my don't sit in my seat. I do a lovely thing at the end of another episode where Bibi is lying on a on a Eva's sofa. And I said, Sharon, just do that thing that was really annoying that you're the eldest and you have always had the same place on the sofa. I, I know your younger sister's always. So it's like just a move and just a, oh. so, so all of those little very tiny things. Well, the kitchen table you're yeah. sitting at here yeah. is to accommodate not just our family here, but it's Aileen's extended yes, family yeah. for Christmas yeah. Day and all of those type of things that go on. You come from... As I mentioned at the outset, you were a communications graduate and I guess it was 1988 that you graduated at the same time I finished in journalism in DCU. And there's an awful lot of people from that era have been very successful Mm -hmm. in various walks. A lot of comedians, for example, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people working in television. But did you see yourself at that stage when you were leaving, ending up directing drama and directing television and movies? Absolutely not. Communications back then, the fact that we finished in 88 meant we went in 85. And as you remember, there was no, there was no work. First, I signed up for a false course. I was supposed to do a false course in 88 when I finished because there was, you went to college to emigrate. And so I think also that all the people in communications who you're right, so many have turned out to be so successful. It was a course that attracted people who didn't really know what they wanted to do or who didn't. Because certainly when I was in school, you were going to join the bank or the civil service or a nurse or go over to London. There, were, there was really just a handful of roles of typical jobs and none of the. Oh, my gosh. And I see now what the kind of detail or more kind of nuanced careers that people can go into or the, or the amount of diversity. So I had no idea you could grow up and be a director. I had 
no idea of that. But I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew what I didn't want to do. I knew I didn't fit the mould. And I think so many, and especially, I think that must be why there's so many comedians out of our, out of course, people. It, it, it was so, we used to, the joke about us in, in college and communications, which I'm sure you heard often was what you ask a communications graduate and it was a Big Mac and two large fries. And it always shocked me that the college didn't hang our work around the place. Or I think they were more focused on languages and business and anyhow, that's a whole other story. But uh, So how did your career develop then after that? Um, because you went to RT, didn't you? No, uh, the first thing I did, uh, I did my student placement in RT in second year. They did intra at the time, which is, and that gave me a look behind the scenes. And I was a runner to, all I was doing was licking stamps and ad, doing admin for, it was supposed to be for three weeks and everybody in RT was on their summer holiday. So I saw at my lunch breaks, I would just go and sit in the studios and watch how things were made and ask a cameraman. But just my own curiosity or ask, could I sit in the back of a gallery? And then the producers came back after their holidays and I was the only person with access to had been knowing what was going on anyhow I got I ended up being a runner for a woman Anish Notaro who is a director female obviously a female director and not that I thought about the difference between men and women but I found her inspiring just watching her confidence I thought maybe I'd like to be a researcher or a PA because that's unconsciously that's what women did I don't think I was conscious of that but when you looked around they were all the roles but Anita was so inspiring and led and was able to take on all the various issues in management or people telling her she could do this or that she says, no I don't think we and, and always with such charm Anita has sadly passed passed away but we became uh, best friends I was her bridesmaid and and then when college finished Granada had a relationship with our college and had various Irish people had to take and anyhow I was one of two people that they sent over for an interview for something and at the interview uh, it's just so clear. At the interview, the head of the department, Graham Wells and Joe Rigby, these two heads, said, OK, so where do you see yourself in? Where do you see yourself? How do you see the future? And I thought, oh, I better not come across as too cocky. Or in Ireland, if you just, at the time, the 80s, if you just, if you were confident, you just got cut down. I think it was a real, so I thought, oh, I better not. I said, in 10 years, I'd like to be a director. And they went, 10 years? Are you crazy? You've got to cut that in half. You should see yourself as a director in five years. And actually, if you're still in this department after two years, we would consider that we made the wrong choice. And I was, oh my gosh. <laughs> in my head, I was going, it was so inspiring to have people to, you can be, you follow your dream. And because that wasn't the, that wasn't the attitude at home. And then anyhow, I ended up going and working in Granada in the promos department. And there was some kind of, we were like a little Ireland. There were lots of, there were lots of Irish people in this. John, who now did, did, does really back the years and Margaret. Anyhow, lots of fabulous Irish men and women in it. And then I got into, I wanted to learn about filmmaking. I got into arts documentaries and as a researcher. And then I worked in a, an art series and I was a researcher setting up arts pieces. And the director was late for a, a shoot one morning, which was to a 50 piece percussion orchestra. And we only had an hour and a half and I had arranged it all. And I thought we had to shoot with two cameras. So I'd strapped one camera to a wheelchair because we couldn't have time to put down tracks and sat the cameraman in it. And I said, he rang to say he was going to be late. And I said, but we only have an hour and a half. And I said, what do we do? And he said, Dervla, you direct it. And I said, but I can't direct. I'm not, he said more about this than me. He said, you said, go for it. And that was my first kind of 
really consciously first piece and I've been directing ever since. And then I was going to move to London and the producer director course came up in RTE. And I came home for the interview really as an excuse to see all the girls, like all my best friends from college. It was they were paying for the ticket home. And anyhow, listen, I got offered it and then it was a big quandary. Will I stay or will I go? Because I had thought about moving on to London and then I just wondered about moving back to Ireland. Would it feel back to having your kind of wings clipped and but the truth is, there's very little training being done anywhere. And I did come back and the, the rest is history. I, I worked in RTE for three years and in, um, in Young People's. And then I did a couple of dramas. I actually did Imelda Staunton's first drama. I did a two-hander with Imel, written by Anne Enright with Mark O'Regan. And I did a drama documentary series, Thou Shalt Not Kill, which was based on the last man sentenced to hang in Ireland, Sean Mahangi, and got to interview him in South Africa. I worked with the Dice Man on the opening of the Eurovision for Mill Street. And so I got, I loved it. It was just a playground and it was before YouTube. We were doing, worked with a wonderful woman, Marina Nigavon, and four young Irish presenters on a show that took over from Squeal and Mock and Bubbling. And I was like, oh, I didn't want to do a, an Irish language music piece and I wanted it to feel more contemporary and I set up this show with Breen McLaughlin and the intention was nobody was ever allowed to stand in front of the camera and report. I wanted to make a show that, an Irish language show that you didn't have to speak Irish to watch and that was Echo Echo and that won a couple of Celtic film and TV awards. And You said you have to have confidence as a director, you have to have ignorance as well and my ignorance was bliss. I didn't know what I didn't know, now I know how much I don't know which is much more But there is something else that strikes me in that as well and that Often television and movies have been described as not a particularly welcoming place for women, for the actors, mm. not paid as much as the male equivalents for the, the women, and also at particular ages not getting parts. Now, I think that initial, that problem with women not getting starring roles has largely dwindled in recent mm. years. It's much more, there's far more female stars of all generations driving TV shows in particular movies. But there still seems to be a dramatic shortage of female directors, or is that still the case? There is still a shortage. I think it's changing. It's, as you say, it's the difference in watching women in their 30s, 40s, 50s and their stories on screen is fantastic. I think directing is not, it's not that it's not female friendly. I wouldn't say that, but... The hours the, where you're, if you want to have a family, it's really difficult, I think, to be a director and have a family. And I really admire those women that have done it. And, and I think, like, for example, Merman were very mother-friendly and whatever the restrictions or commitments that the actors had with their children were always taken into consideration. That was the ethos of the company. But most times, the, a, a production and a schedule are not interested in if your child is sick or you have to leave to, to collect them from school. And the reality is that that, that is very... <laughs> In, in general, so many women are... But does it go deeper than that? Do you think could have been as well that executives simply didn't trust women to direct TV and movies? And that you're amongst a, a small number who've managed to I break think, the mould. I, I think that there's an element of, of truth in that. But I also think... I think one of the most difficult and the job I would like least on a production is a producer and an executive producer. And it's also one of the roles that is the hardest to get people who are good at. Because... 
you have to, I think a good producer has to take chances. So many producers want to see that you've done it before. And I think that's been one of the difficult things here with so many Irish directors going international. Those, they want to see, have you already? So you need to get a break. You need to get a break to, to get on. And that's something that's very important for me. I'm always pushing younger directors and trying to get producers to take a chance on female DOPs, female, because I know they've got the spirit and the confidence and the talent to do, but you have to have an opportunity to fail and most producers don't want somebody who might fail and for some reason they rarely think men will fail and men rarely show their vulnerability and failure where I think where I think we do a little bit more at the very top the industry is run by in in the main by men and it and it trickles down I'm definitely not uh, divisive in, in because I got some of my biggest breaks Morgan O'Sullivan from Ardmore Studios and Mickey McGowan and a, a drama producer for the BBC you know there were people who trusted me who took chances and I always quote them when I'm trying to get other producers to to take a chance on new people Just a couple of things to finish have you ever ended up working on something that you haven't liked that you've ended up directing something that sort of goes against your own sort of instincts as to what is correct, but you're required to do so almost by the producers or by the owning company. I'm incredibly lucky that I have never done something that I didn't want to do or that just because I had to do it. So that's the first thing. So there's nothing that politically or tonally, I go, this is a precinct cop drama that I've absolutely no interest in but I have worked on things that I thought would be I have worked on things that I've wanted to get off I worked on a drama that I when I was really interested in the themes of it and we were the scripts didn't weren't improving the way the producer promised they would and the working conditions weren't quite what you know was promised and we weren't ready to start filming when the producer was saying we need to start and I thought this is going to be a car crash and I said I can't jump ship because I've never walked away from a job then I was trying to work out to choreograph how could I be going to cross the street and a double-decker bus is coming and if I step out and it lightly grazes me then I'd be taken to hospital and maybe my leg would be broken I wouldn't be able to and that would be my way out of the drama rather comically that's a sequence that I actually ended up directing on Bad Sisters where she steps out so it was like my subconscious play that and secondly I I eventually went to the producer and I said, this is, we are going to crash and burn. And he gave us a, an extra week if we'd work for nothing for the week. Anyhow, <laughs> the things I ended up doing, the drama, it actually ended up winning an award, I think. But anyhow, it turned out to be okay. So that's more, this dramas I've wanted to get off because I didn't think we're ready yet to. I don't think I've had, I really don't think I've had to do something because I know directors who have walked off because a producer said, there was a horse riding scene and the woman was pregnant and the director said, I'm not putting a pregnant woman on a horse. So I've never had, I've never had to do things section. I actually don't do things that would compromise the people I'm working with. I think, I'm sure somebody now is going to ring and say, Dervla, you made me hang out of a car with no safety belts with a camera while driving. I'm sure there is. <laughs> but yeah, no. I'm lucky. I'm really lucky. And I feel really privileged to have the opportunity to make new relationships and every... The job never grows today because I'm, I'm, every drama is a different set of relationships. It's a different story. I always choose things that are challenging to me, something that I can connect with, that has a, something of me in it that, so that I can, I don't know, learn through it or bring myself to it. And yeah, I just feel 
incredible. I had no idea I would get this lucky. Yeah, and have so much fun doing it. And what now? What next? Now the Bad Sisters is showing on Apple TV. What's the next Derville Walsh project? The most immediate one is actually another Apple, another drama for Apple, and it's set in Tokyo, written by an Irishman, adapted by uh, by an American woman called Sunny, and it's uh, set in the near future. So I'm going to Tokyo in two weeks, and I'll be there till Christmas. And I'm working with Rashid Jones, Quincy Jones, Delosher, and the wonderful I can I won't pronounce his name correctly. The uh, wonderful lead actor from Drive My Car, the Japanese uh, film. And it's a really, again, it's out of my comfort zone. It's set in the near future. It's about female relationships and about emotional intelligence. And that sounds really pretentious, but it's about somebody who has a secret to creating a bot, a, a computer, a humanoid a robot that can feel because obviously artificial intelligence doesn't feel so that how there's an emotion. So developing this robot that's almost like your puppy who wants to make you happy and you want to. But so it's a really interesting. So that's a 10 part I'm working on that. That's the immediate. And then in the long term, I have there's lots of other fingers, a couple of other series and three different features that I'm in early stages of. So, yeah, there's, it's, well, I'm the future's to, bright. I'm going to finish on a slightly different note to any of the other interviews I've conducted here in the Magnified series because... Are you going to tell me something about being in the canteen in <laughs> DCU and I stole your chips or something? Nothing like that. But you're such an incredibly hard worker. I have to finish by mentioning the fact that you and my wife Aileen would have been good friends in yeah. college together and you went and you did your J1 together in the United States in Cape May. Yeah. And from the stories Aileen's told me, you were far from being a hard worker at that stage. Every, your wife, Aileen, and her sister, really, we were all in college together, really good friends. And Aileen, or Millie, as we used to call her back in the day, and Irene, we set off on our J-1 visa and I turned up to Hotel Congress Hall in Cape May, New Jersey, where a cousin I'd never met was the manager, and which was full of all the staff of us were born again Christians from the Midwest. And we three Irish women came in and I tell you it was, it was a summer to be remembered and we were chambermaids. Oh my gosh. And the world's worst chambermaids? The world's worst chambermaids. And we were found sometimes in the massive tumble dryers going round and round. And, and we all did two or three jobs and we shared a two, the three of us shared a two, a bunk room. And so somebody, the person working at night meant the person working at day could sleep in their bed. And then they got up in the morning to go to their job when the person who had done the night shift. And we... Um, we, uh, the, that, that hotel had never seen, it was one of being Paisley's favourite hotels. It was, it was just, we were like this little wild Ireland in, came, and we are still friends with those people. And it was a very formative, it was a very formative summer. A lot of things, what goes on a chambermaid tour stays on chambermaid tour. So hopefully she didn't tell you about. And we will leave it on that <laughs> note. Dermot Walsh, thank you so much for taking the time for joining me here on Magnified. Thank you. And that's it for the latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. We hope you've enjoyed this, the latest episode. And if you did, well, why don't you tell a friend, please, that they can pick it up on the Go Loud app or on Apple or Spotify or wherever they get their podcasts. And there's plenty of previous editions you might like as well. Produced in association with MG Ireland. Look forward to your company again for the next edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. Magnified with Matt Cooper Sponsored by MG The family friendly electric range Book a test drive at mg.ie And recharge your soul